One day, Dr. Christian Bernard walked into the room of Dr. Philip Blyberg in a hospital in Cape Town in South Africa. He sat down on the side of his bed and he held in his hands a plastic box. It was clear, transparent, and inside that box was Dr. Blyberg's old discarded heart. It had been carefully dissected. And when Dr. Bernard showed it to Dr. Blyberg, he began to explain to him how that over 90% of this organ had been fibrosed, how that it would not carry out its life-giving function, and just exactly what was wrong with it. And then while Dr. Blyberg, still weak and pale, held that box in his hand and looked at it, Dr. Bernard made this remark. He said, Dr. Blyberg, do you realize that you are the first human being in all the history of mankind who has ever held his own old dead heart in his hands and looked at it? And at that moment, Blyberg looked up, and the eerie flash of the flash bulbs of the cameras popped, and the television cameras began to whir, and there was recorded on film for history that momentous occasion. This was remarkable, and the news-gathering media put it out all over the planet Earth. We have celebrated in this tremendous advance that has been made in medical science, and rightly so. The news of the gospel is far better news than anything about a scientific transplant of a heart. Because the resurrection of Jesus brings to us not simply a transplant, but a new creation, a brand new life, a new heart. I had a grand professor, a man whom I will never be able to forget, who was the soul of Christian humility, a great saint of God, Dr. James S. Stewart in Edinburgh. And I copied down these matchless words of his regarding the resurrection. He tried to impress upon us as students the fact that the resurrection was not an appendix to the gospel. He said, and I quote, This is the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Christ, the whole structure of Christianity falls to pieces. Without the resurrection, there is no atonement. St. Paul is perfectly right when he says, if Christ be not risen from the dead, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, you are still in your sins, they that have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. This is what Christianity essentially is, a religion of resurrection. This is what every act of public worship is, a celebration of the resurrection. This is what the gospel offers today to this dark, ruined chaos of a world. It offers the power of the resurrection. Now, the power of the resurrection brings to us the power of a brand new heart. In Scripture, the word heart is not normally used to speak of a physical organ. In Scripture, the word heart is meant to designate the feelings, the emotions, the desires, the passions, the place of understanding, of thought, of reflection, the seat of will, and the place where resolves are made, the whole inner man. Thus the heart is supremely the one center in man in which God deals, in which the religious life is rooted, and which determines, as a result of that rooting, our moral conduct. This is what the gospel is meant to teach. Now last Sunday I tried to preach the fact of the resurrection, 
that the faith which we hold is a faith that is based not upon a feeling of love for Jesus, but the fact of the empty tomb and the fact of his resurrection from the dead. Based upon that fact, there comes a strong faith, and our feelings which may come and go are based upon a faith that is based upon a fact. We don't put feelings first. We put feelings last. It's like a train. You have, first of all, the engine, which is your fact. Next to the engine, you have a coal tender, a coal car to provide fuel. And then you may have a, a caboose. And a caboose is a nice thing to have. But if you put the caboose up in the front, you can't pull the engine or the coal tender. Now, the caboose represents feelings. And the feelings are always to be reckoned as being in the least. They are the back, not the front. Now then, our fact of the faith is the resurrection of Christ. And people come and say, now you are preaching away on the resurrection of Jesus and the fact of his resurrection, but what about all these hellish problems that exist in the here and now that we have to deal with today? What about the ghettos? What about Vietnam? What about the anti-ballistics missile systems that are being erected? Where does the resurrection fit into our modern plans? The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings power to a new life. When Jesus went away, he offered his apostles, his disciples, a great commission. He told them to go into all the world and preach what? The gospel. And the gospel is that resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He gave them a commission. He gave them a task. He said, you are to be witnesses to what? You are to be witnesses, he said to me. You are to be witnesses to my death and to my resurrection from the dead. And your witnessing will not only be in Judea and in Samaria, but it will be to the very uttermost parts of the earth. And he gave them a message to preach to. He told them that they were to preach repentance and the remission of sins. Repentance and the remission of sins. The word repentance in scripture is metanoia in Greek. The same root word from which we get metabolism. Metabolism means a change that is taking place in our body. Metamorphosis is a change that takes place in form. Meta means change. Noia in Greek means mind. And repentance is not simply being sorry for sins. Repentance means a changed mind, a new type of outlook a different orientation. Jesus commanded them that repentance and the forgiveness of sins was to be preached to the ends of the earth. And he offered them also an explanation of this. You remember those two that we talked about last Sunday on the road to Emmaus? He described to them how that the Messiah was to be God's offering for sin. And then he gave them the grand promise, which is also a part of the heart of our faith. That promise is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, that Jesus is here this morning, that wherever two people are gathered in his name, there will be a third, and that third one will be Christ, that wherever there are three, there will be a fourth, and that fourth will be Christ, that wherever there are four, there will be a fifth, and that fifth one will be Christ, that he will never, never, never leave us alone. Now when he had bade them farewell, and he was ascended into heaven, they did not go back to Jerusalem in doldrums, but they went back to Jerusalem rejoicing. 
They rejoiced. They were awed by it all, and they stood there gazing into the heavens until the angels had to shake them awake and say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Go do what he told you to do. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled in you. And so they went back to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit came, and he set their hearts on fire and sent them to the very ends of the earth. Now then, when God controls our heart, when he gives us a new heart, and the living Christ is at the center of that heart, it makes all the difference in our moral conduct that we were concerned about a moment ago. So when Paul writes his letter to the church in Colossae, as Paul always does when he writes a letter, he gives Christian doctrine or faith. He explains it. And then based upon that faith, he roots a conduct. He does this in Romans. He does it in Philippians. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in, in Colossians. He does it in First and Second Timothy, in First and Second Thessalonians. Every time Paul preached a sermon, he put first things first, the communication of the Christian doctrine, the message of the facts of the gospel, and the faith that we had to have in those facts. And then on the basis of those facts and that faith, Paul goes on to show that there must be a corresponding conduct that will prove the reality of our faith, that shows that we are alive to him, to Christ, spiritually. Now then, the question is this. Do you have this new heart? Are you risen again with Christ? Is there a moral response in you to him? Paul, when he gets to this wonderful third chapter of Colossians, Spurgeon has an interesting comment. Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher. And he has an interesting comment on this chapter. He says this chapter begins in heaven and it ends in the kitchen. And it does. It begins in heaven, and it ends in the kitchen. The gospel has its practical aspects, but put first things first. Now then, on the basis of this risen Christ, Paul says if you are risen with Christ, then reach out for the highest gifts of heaven where Christ reigns in power. Your life has to be a life that is being lived in harmony with the life of Jesus Christ. Just before this, in the second chapter of Colossians, he had talked about baptism. And this always makes me cringe because my Baptist friends tell me about this burial of Christ in the water and his resurrection again is a type of the new life. And I've always been slow to admit that there was any water in the second chapter of Colossians, but I'm afraid there is sometimes because there is placed here an analogy of Christ, that just as you are buried in baptism under the water, you are raised from that water into a resurrection that is supposed to be a type of a new life, a brand new life in Jesus Christ. Now then, Paul had just gotten through talking about that death to self, that burial in baptism, and that resurrection from that death and now he speaks about the risen life. So what? You're baptized. Now are you living a risen life in Christ? If you then are risen with Christ, reach out for the highest gifts of heaven. Prove that you belong to him by the newness of life that you live. Prove that you belong to him.
give your heart, give your heart to the heavenly things, not to the passing things of earth. For as far as this world is concerned, you are already dead, and your life, your true life, is hidden with Christ in God. Now then, he, he gets down to basics. Insofar then as you have to live upon this earth, consider yourself dead. Now that's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? Consider yourself dead to worldly contacts. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, dirty-mindedness, uncontrolled passion, evil desire, and the lust for other people's goods. My, how these words should speak to us today in the world in which we live. In the world in which we live, in which pornography floods even onto the theater in the place of the performing arts into a, a, a gross and repulsive degree. The shamefulness of America has now become the dirt that is displayed in public. And here, here according to the Christian gospel, and these people did not live in any lily pure age. These earliest Christians lived in which Venus was worshipped, in a world in which Zeus, a war god, was worshipped, in a world in which Aphrodite, a sex goddess, is worshipped. And yet, in the midst of all of that filth, they are told to live a life that will be in keeping with the life of Jesus Christ, that will be free from this immorality, this dirt, this filth, this uncontrolled passion, this evil desire. Now, Paul makes a lot of this. He goes on not only to speak of these sins of the body, but these sins of the mouth. But now put all these things behind you. No more evil temper. No more evil thoughts. No more evil thoughts. How can that be? How can I keep from having evil thoughts? You remember the wise old saying of Martin Luther, that you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building nests in your hair. Your mind can only think of one thing at a time. And if you keep your mind fixed on things above and not on things on the earth, if you keep your mind in tune with Jesus Christ, he will keep your heart. A few years ago, about four years ago now, I had an interesting experience. I was up in Labrador in Newfoundland on a preaching mission with the Air Force, and I got to fly a full-profile mission, a two-and-a-half-hour mission, in a Delta Wing F-102, a big 15-ton fighter interceptor. It travels at supersonic speeds. And some of you have heard me tell before about how we came in in a snowstorm. Of course, in that north country, the snow moves in quickly. And I can never forget that time when we were coming back to the base to land. And you couldn't see anything. There was fog, there was snow, uh, there was no visibility. In fact, the visibility was 200 feet. And so we had to come in. And this makes it very interesting when you're in an airplane that weighs 15 tons of metal and nuclear-tipped missiles and fuel. And do you know how we got in? We got in through something called ground approach control where the pilot was in contact with goose radar. 
And the goose radar man could see him on a radar screen. And he said, uh, our code name was Hotel Lima 24. And he said, Hotel Lima 24, I'm vectoring you with a positive radar contact. He told us what to do. He said, take a heading of 350 degrees. You are now clear to descend to 2,500 feet. We obeyed his instructions. But the interesting part came when we got close to touchdown because the final controller came on and he said, Hotel Lima 24, this is your final controller. Do not acknowledge any further transmissions. That meant don't argue about it. You do what I tell you to do. And then he began to tell us, you're drifting to the left of your glide path at 348 degrees, correct to 350 degrees. And then he would say, you're drifting to the right of your glide path to 352 degrees, correct now to 350 degrees. And then he finally told us, you're over the approach lights now, 1,500 feet from the end of the runway, assume visual control, and we landed. Now, we had to have faith in the man in the control tower, the man who could not even see us, who was watching us on radar. The Christian is being guided by Jesus Christ. And if we can have faith in earthly radar, we can have faith in the risen Christ. We can obey the control tower. We can let him speak to us. No more evil temper. No more evil thoughts or words about others. No more evil thoughts or words about God. No more filthy conversation. Don't tell lies to one another anymore. Yesterday afternoon, two young men had a long talk with me. They wanted to talk about overcoming temptation. They're very much in earnest about their Christian faith. But around their dormitory rooms, they sometimes have filth pushed at them from every direction. They wanted some rules about how they could avoid temptations that would pull them into sin, how they can show the evidences of a new heart and life, of the controlling power of Jesus Christ in their life. We pray in the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, lead us not into temptation. Well, that means don't go into temptation. If there's a dirty girl, don't go out with her. Use some sense. If there's a boy who is evil-minded, stay away from him. Use some sense. If there are books that are dirty, get rid of them. Use some sense. Don't go to films that are, that are suggestive and evil. Just use some brains at that point. That's all it takes. And by disciplining yourself in this way, you minimize your contacts with temptation, although all of us will be tempted. God had no son who was not tempted. He had one son without sin, but no son who was not tempted. And it's interesting to me that in the account of the Garden of Eden, that the tree of temptation, the tree of good and evil, where was it? It was in the midst of the garden where they had to pass by it every day. Temptation will come. But by being controlled by this risen Christ, by letting him control your thoughts, letting him control your body and your mind because you belong to him, he is in your heart. He will give you victory there. And it's not enough just to say we won't do these things. We have to put some positive things in their place. I remember once reading about a river captain on the Mississippi River. And this was back in the days when the old paddle wheel steamers, the river boats, went up and down the Mississippi. And a man came one day to the bridge where the captain was, and he said to him, Captain, I suppose you know where every sandbar is in this river. And the captain said, No, I don't. He said, I know where two or three sandbars are. 
but I don't know where all of them are. And the man said, well, aren't you afraid after all the years on this river that you don't know where all the sandbars are? And the captain said, look, I don't spend my time looking around for sandbars. He said, I know where the deep water is and I stay in that. Now that's good sense. You can know something about the temptations that are there, but know where the deep water is. There are good Christian people that you can be in company with. There are good films and wholesome books and splendid magazines to read and many fine athletic activities that can be engaged in that are all fruitful, useful, productive, and wholesome. These are things that can be done. And so Paul goes on as picked representatives of God, of the new humanity, who are purified and beloved of God himself, be merciful in action, be kindly in heart, be humble in mind, accept life and be patient and tolerant with one another, always ready to forgive. And then he tells us that the golden chain of love binds all these virtues together. Last week I read a tribute to a woman named Mrs. Miss Hogelsworth, an old school teacher who had taught school for 50 solid years in a little country town and they built a brand new library in the town and they named it in honor of her. And they had a lot of distinguished guests and many of her former students who had made great success in life there. And a great crowd of people were all assembled in front of the library. And she began to reminisce and to talk about the old days and the one-room schoolhouse and how it had grown and how things had expanded. And she said something that maybe all of us parents and school teachers and students alike ought to remember. She said, you know, you've got visual aids now. You've got a wonderful library and you've got equipment in your laboratory. But she said, all we had to work with when I started out was love. All we had to work with was love. And yet look what she built. Love is what binds everything else together and love has to be there. The very end of this chapter tells us to encourage one another in our Christian faith, to be encouraging to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Years ago, I attended a youth convention in Auburn, Alabama. I don't remember what any speakers said at that meeting except one. His name was Darby Fulton, old white-haired man who was a missionary uh, leader of the mission board. He talked about his call to the mission field. And I was a student in college at the time, and I wasn't particularly interested in the mission field. But when he got through, he quoted the words of a song that was familiar to most of the people there, but totally new to me. And it's the secret of the new heart in Christ. He said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would pray with your servant David of old. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We pray that the risen Christ may be the one who reigns in our hearts, 
that we may avoid the sins that would discredit our profession of faith in him, and that we may, O oh God, grow in those virtues and graces which will attract other people and bring them to him, and which will also enable us to enjoy the fruit of our faith in him. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and our guide be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.